Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. We're looking at a little section today in Luke's gospel, uh, in the book of Acts that is from Luke, um, Acts chapter 3. It really extends all the way through to chapter 5. We had a little bit read out in the middle there, chapter 4, which we'll come to in a moment. But I thought as we look at this episode, it's good if we start where the story starts, back in Acts chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible there, you could open it up to Acts chapter 3 or call it up on your device. That would be really useful as we look through these couple of chapters. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1. One day, Peter and John, Peter and John, one of Jesus' closest 12 disciples, known as the apostles, the sent ones, the ones Jesus authorised to go as his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, out to the very ends of the earth. Peter and John, we realise here, were going up to the temple in Jerusalem at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man, crippled from birth, was carried to the temple gate that's called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now that, you would have to think, wouldn't you, if you were standing there, that you'd have to say Peter was crazy. I mean, this guy, well known in the city of Jerusalem, crippled from birth, begs, I presume, probably every day there at the temple. That's how he stays alive. People give him a few coins out of their pocket. Peter walks up and says, you've been crippled from birth. No problem. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Now, an easy thing to read. It's a pretty hard thing to actually say to someone and mean it, right? Get up and walk. You've been crippled since birth. If you were standing there, one of the people coming up to the temple in Jerusalem, you would think, surely... Peter has lost his marbles, right? He's crazy. But then you might think, well, hang on, Peter, he's one of those guys who hung around with that Jesus character and Jesus was well known throughout his ministry as a miracle worker. If you go back to Luke's volume 1, right? Acts is his volume 2, volume 1, the the Gospel of Luke in our New Testament. If you go back to Luke volume 1, and look at the ministry of Jesus as Luke records it, from the very beginning, Jesus was known as a miracle worker. You can chase it up yourself in Acts chapter 4 when Jesus starts his public ministry, when he rocks up to his hometown of Nazareth. They say, hey, why don't you do all those amazing signs, miracles, that you did when we heard you were in Capernaum. Right from the very very beginning, Jesus was known as a miracle worker, an astounding worker of miracles. And so if you look through all of the things that Jesus does in Luke's Gospel, uh, he removes fevers from people miraculously, he banishes unclean spirits, he heals people of skin diseases, he even in Luke chapter 7 and 8 raises people who have died back to life. He resuscitates them miraculously. And we get a few comments from Luke going through Luke's Gospel about just general Jesus healing. In chapter 4 verse 40, People brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. 
No sickness was too hard for Jesus of Nazareth. He could heal them all. So maybe, maybe Peter was, had remembered what Jesus did and suddenly thought, well, Jesus is not here anymore. Jesus died, rose back to life again, ascended to heaven. So maybe I can step in and do a bit of Jesus' work. Is that what is going on in his mind? Well, no, no not quite actually. Because Peter himself had done this before. He'd healed people before in the name of Jesus. If you look through Luke's Gospel, you can find that in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out the twelve, that is, Peter and John and the other, other close group of disciples. He'd sent them out into the various towns. And this is what you read in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out. So they set out and went from village to village healing people everywhere. So Peter and John had done this before. They'd gone around healing people in the name of Jesus. And clearly, when Jesus sends out the twelve in Luke chapter 9, when he sends them out, he doesn't send them out in their own power. What did Luke say? He gave them power and authority to do these miracles. That's interesting because if you read back a bit earlier in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4, you'll see what, what all the crowds say when they see Jesus performing miracles. They say, what amazing power and authority this person has from God. So God the Father had given power and authority to the Lord Jesus. Jesus shares that power and authority with the twelve and he sends them out to do these miracles. So now you can see as we get back into Acts, what is the significance of what Peter is doing in Acts chapter 3? Well, Jesus has died, risen again, ascended to heaven, but sent them out and said, you will be my witnesses to the end of the world. In other words, I'm leaving, but the mission, my mission continues and you are to be the ones who will continue it. So when Peter rocks up to the temple, sees this guy crippled from birth, he's got no money to give him, he says, I can give you something. I can continue Jesus' mission with you. Get up and walk. Now, if you were standing there, you would think he was crazy, but you can sort of see how it's working in Peter's mind. The question is, is he right? Has Peter joined the dots correctly? So let's see. Back there, Acts chapter 3, picking it up in verse 6, we can see then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk taking him by the right hand he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong he jumped to his feet and began to walk then he went with them into the temple courts walking and jumping and praising God interestingly this guy was not just suddenly able to walk and jump which he hadn't been able to do his whole life He was now able to enter into the temple court because as somebody who was a cripple, he was actually not allowed to come into the place of prayer. But now that he is healed, restored, he's actually restored into full communion with the community and with God. There's a picture here, not just of a physical healing, but of a spiritual restoration going on for this guy. He went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God, 
Verse 9, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So yeah, Peter could do it. He could do it because Jesus' mission was still on. Interestingly, when you start to look then through the rest of the book of Acts, you realise that this amazing healing, this restoration, physical and spiritual, was not an isolated incident. So if you look there in your book of Acts there, if you jump back to Acts chapter 2, verse 43, you can see there, Luke says, Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And you can get similar general comments uh, throughout the book of Acts, say in Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 16, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and all of them were healed. So this was no isolated incident. The apostles kept doing all these sort of miracles. And you get some specific examples related throughout the book of Acts. Stephen in chapter 6, uh, performed signs and wonders. Philip in chapter 8, Peter in chapter 9, Paul and Barnabas from chapter 14 right through to the end of the book of Acts. All specific examples of the apostles doing these signs and wonders, these miracles. So it makes us then think, how come in chapter 3 Luke spends so much time explaining it all? If the apostles were doing these miracles a fair bit, why does he give so much time to describing this particular healing? I think there's two reasons that we get a lot of detail in Acts chapter 3 and 4. The first one is that he records the things that Peter said that went with the healing. There is a message that goes with the miracle. And so he records that in some detail. But the particular reason I think he's recorded the miracle and the message for us in great detail here is because as a result of this healing and the message that is preached, the Christians end up being persecuted for their faith for the very first time. This is the very first time in all of Christian history that Christians were persecuted for their faith in Jesus as a result of that amazing miracle and the message that accompanied it. Because what happens is the religious authorities hear what Peter says after he does this miracle they get very upset and the religious authorities grab Peter and John, throw them in prison overnight and the next day haul them before them and ask them to give an account and then try to suppress what they have done and say you're not allowed to do this stuff and teach in Jesus' name anymore. It's the first uh, moment we have of public persecution of Christians. So I think that's why Luke has recorded it in some detail for us. Okay, so let's then stop to think a little bit about what is the message that goes with this particular miracle that Luke records in such detail for us? The miracles and the message. You notice here in chapters 3 and 4, there are actually two messages, two speeches. One is given to the crowd straight after the healing is done. They walk in, they praise God, everyone's going, that's amazing, what's going on? Peter gives a little speech, explains what's going on. As a result of that, there's a commotion with the religious authorities and the next day he has to give another speech but this time to the religious authorities explaining what's going on. Two different speeches, chapter 3, chapter 4. However, if you read 
them both in detail, there's actually only one real message, one common message in both speeches. This common message that Peter says to the crowd and to the religious authorities has two parts. First of all, his first part of it is, his message is, this is not about us, this miracle that you've just wished us. This is not about me and John. This is actually about Jesus. Have a look there. Got your Bible there. Verse 11, chapter 3. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, <laughs> the guy's able to walk and jump, and he's hanging on to Peter and John. Why is he hanging on to them? Not, I presume not because he needs the help to walk, but it's because these guys, these guys have rescued me. They've saved me. They've, you know, they've, he's holding on to them with joy. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Well, the guy's been crippled since birth. It's pretty surprising. But anyway, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man work? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. It's not about us, it's about this guy Jesus. Now, Jesus was a very common name back in those days around that part of the world, right? Chances are you growing up around Jerusalem, you probably had a neighbour down the road whose name was Jesus. Probably your cousin was called Jesus, right? It's a really common name. So he says, The God of our Father, the God we worship, has has glorified his servant Jesus. What? My cousin? You don't be my cousin, Jesus, right? No, 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 I need to tell you which Jesus I'm talking about, which he continues on. He then says, Jesus, literally it's one sentence in the original, Jesus, whom you handed over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, the Roman authority, though he had decided, Pilate had decided to let him go. That Jesus, the Jesus that we saw executed outside the city gates a couple of you know, weeks ago, two months ago, that Jesus who, yeah, Pilate wanted to set him free, but then we all were there and yelling out, no, we don't want him, give us Barabbas who was a murderer, we'll have him instead, you can kill Jesus. That, that Jesus, God's glorified. Okay, that doesn't sound good. Peter ramps it up even more, verse 14. You know who that Jesus was? You disowned the holy and righteous one. Now, holy and righteous one is a title, which may be in your Bibles there in capital letters, rightly so. It's a title from the Old Testament about God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's King. You disowned the holy and righteous one, the one standing at the very centre of all of God's purposes, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. Okay, so we chose a murderer over the Christ. Okay, that, that's bad too, isn't it? And then he, then he really digs in with the terrible, tragic irony of what they have done. Verse 15, You killed the author of life. The irony there. You killed the author of life. The one in whom you can find real life. You killed the author of life, but God raised him, the author of life, from the dead. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. The one you killed, you rejected, who stands at the centre of God's purposes, but whom God has raised from the dead. That's in whose name this guy's been healed. 
Then Peter returns and then he explains his role in this. He says, we are witnesses of this, of Jesus' resurrection. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him as you can all see. That's what's going on. Jesus has made him strong. The name of Jesus. Now it's probably worth just pausing and thinking, okay, the name of Jesus, the name of Does that mean that just the word Jesus, the five letters, the name Jesus has some sort of power? This guy's been healed in the name of Jesus. So maybe if you use the name of Jesus, you can have that same sort of power in healing people. You've got to stop and just think, what does this idea of the name of someone mean? I'll give you an example. Your friend sitting next to you today, if they're not your friend yet, hopefully one day they might be your friend. But anyway, your friend sitting next to you says, oh, I've got to sell my car, but I'm going on holidays overseas, because frankly, they're dead set rich, right? They've got a car and they're going on holidays overseas. But anyway, they got, and they didn't invite you to go with them, interestingly. Um, so, I've got to sell my car, but I'm going overseas. Can you sell it for me? Can you sell it in my name? I'll authorise you to sell it in my name. And then I go, well, I'm looking for a car, and I see your ad online, and I come and go, oh, I'll buy your car. And when I'm buying the car from you, I'm, I'm not actually just buying the car from you, am I? I'm buying the car from your friend, because you're acting in their name. Does that make sense? You're acting in the name so. When you act in the name of somebody or do something in someone's name, that speaks particularly of a relationship. You have a relationship with that person. That's why you're able to do things in their name. Sometimes that will mean that you have particular power. They delegate power to you, to sell the power to sell the car. But sometimes it might mean that it's some other thing that you're able to do because of your relationship with So what's going on here is when they say this guy's been healed in the name of Jesus, that means Jesus is the one who's doing the work here but he's doing it through our relationship with him. We might be the conduits, the instruments that he's using but it's Jesus who's doing this rather than us. And if you look through the book of Acts, all sorts of things happen in the name of Jesus. People are baptised in the name of Jesus. They're healed in the name of Jesus. They put their faith in the name of Jesus. Does that mean they just trust the word Jesus? No, it means they trust Jesus and who he is and his position and power and authority, his identity. They speak in the name of Jesus. They risk their lives for the name of Jesus. All of which is speaking of a relationship they have with the living Lord Jesus. And in the case of miracles and healings, what that means is that they, they are able to, or Jesus heals the person through his power active through, in this case, the apostles. You can um, see a really interesting case actually of how it's not about the name Jesus as though that was somehow magical. If you look to Acts chapter 19, and we'll look this up, we don't really need to, I could just ask you to look it up later, but it's actually quite funny. Acts chapter 19, the Bible is funny at times, you might not realise that. Acts chapter 19 Acts chapter 19 and looking here at verse 11. 
we get another instance here of the apostles doing miracles in the name of Jesus. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the unclean spirits left them. I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? That's like healing by remote here. Blow your nose on this. Well, it probably wasn't blow your nose. Like, take it, a handkerchief. In the name of Jesus, look. Woo! Like, it's pretty amazing, healing by remote. But anyway, the interesting thing is what happened next, verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out unclean spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the unclean spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the unclean spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So clearly you can't just say, I'm just going to do things in the name of Jesus without a relationship, right? It doesn't work. It's not like a magic name. It speaks of a relationship that you have with that person. Okay, so the first thing that you see in these speeches, it's not about us, Peter and John. It's about Jesus. The second thing they say is, the fact that Jesus has done this amazing healing means the time that God promised has arrived. The time that God promised has arrived. Now, up if you were sort of at an EU public meeting last week. A few of you? Right. Last week, as we were looking at Acts chapter 2, to help us understand Acts chapter 2, I pushed us through a crash course in the hope of Israel 101. Do you remember that briefly? And I had this diagram, which will make a lot of sense to you if you were here and none probably if you weren't here. But that's okay. You can get the MP3 and listen to it. So you won't see the diagram. So I don't show how that will help you. But anyway... Um, at the centre of the hopes of God's Old Testament people and nation of Israel was that one day God would introduce his kingdom. He would rule. He would establish his good rule for the good of all. The kingdom of God was the centre of their hope. And in that, in that kingdom there would be a king, a Christ, a Messiah. What you saw uh, is that the resurrection of Jesus identified him as the king in the kingdom and indicated that the the day of the kingdom of God was now arriving. He poured out his spirit as well, all of which was in fulfilment of the covenant promises in the Old Testament. Those covenant promises included the restoration of national Israel and that God's grace extending out to the nations. We saw all that last week. What you're going to notice now in this next little bit as we come back then to Peter's speech is that a lot of those elements of the hope of Israel are all raised by Peter in his little speech. So if you have chapter 3 open there, have a look. Chapter 3, verse 17. See if you can identify some of those things. Now, brothers, he says, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders in the killing of Jesus. But this is how God fulfilled all that he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Uh, Even Jesus just means namely Jesus. You know, that that is, I'm talking about, Jesus is this Christ. 
he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely come off from among the people. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Indeed, Peter goes on, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. There's all the nations. When God raised up his servant, there's resurrection, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked way. So a lot of the elements of Israel's hopes, Peter is explaining, that's what's going on here. This is the kingdom of God moment. That's why this guy has been healed. But two interesting things about this little speech. First of all, notice he says, Jesus is going to come back. Jesus has been raised, he says, and Jesus is now in heaven until he comes back when the full restoration will take place. That's really helpful information. Because you might think if you just see some guy who's been crippled from birth, you see him suddenly walking, you might think, that's it. Like this, we just get that happening on a big scale and that is the fulfilment, surely, of all of God's promises. Because how awesome is that? Everyone who's sick, temporarily fixed, so able to walk again. I mean, I say temporarily because that guy, even though suddenly, amazingly, he's able to walk and jump, what happens if you run over him with your wheelbarrow next week? And, he, and, he's, and his leg is damaged terribly and he can't walk again. It's, it's potentially only a temporary fix, yes? But there, it's, I mean, it's an amazing temporary fix, but you could, you could be tempted in thinking, yes, that's it, that's the fulfilment. No, Peter says, no, no. The full restoration is going to come when Jesus comes back. So it probably makes you think, right, well, what's the point of the... I mean, the temporary restoration is good, but what's really the point of that? Well, actually, these miracles, if you read right through the book of Luke and right through the book of Acts, these miracles are only ever glimpses, opaque glimpses. You know when you look through frosted glass? You can sort of see, but not exactly. I mean, you're seeing, but it's not clear. These miracles are like little glimpses through frosted glass of the real restoration, the real salvation that God has promised but will now only come about when Jesus returns. They're meant to make you understand the nature of the kingdom of God. That Yes, it does involve a restoration, a physical and spiritual restoration and make you long for the fulfilment when it finally comes the permanent fulfilment. That's the point of the miracles all the way through in the book of Acts. Uh, I think it's very interesting that if you jump then down to the second speech, chapter 4, you can see Peter says the same sort of things. It's the one common message. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone. And then he concludes with this. Salvation is found in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What he's saying is, when you see this crippled guy healed in Jesus' name, that tells you not just that the kingdom of God is arriving. That tells you that Jesus is the only one who can bring in the full kingdom in the future. Because this is a little glimpse and it's being done by Jesus in Jesus' name and that gives you a, that helps you know that the one who can bring about the full restoration is this Jesus. He is the capital S Saviour who brings a capital S salvation. Not a temporary fix, a permanent an eternal fix. See, I think it's very interesting the way we function as human beings, the way everybody at this uni or in this city functions is we all have issues and problems that we want solved in our life. It might be a relationship problem. It might be an academic problem. It might be a securing my future problem. It might be a financial problem. And so what we do, because we have problems, is we look for little s saviours. What's the little less saviour that's going to fix this particular problem? I've got a problem in my relationship, so I go and read Cosmo or something. I don't know. Something that's going to help you solve your relationship problem. You look for a little less saviour. You're laughing. But it happens. When, when you're desperate, you'll turn to any saviour, actually. Online, forums, anything. If you're having trouble, you're worried about your future and how you're going to secure your future and the answer, you don't think this yet, but give yourself 10 years and you will think like this. What's the answer to securing your future? The little s saviour is the big s superannuation. That's going to be my financial future. That's my security. You're worried about what job you'll get, how you'll own a house... So you work really hard now because your little less saviour is academic success, the top of my class. We always cling on to little less saviours, hoping they're going to save us from our problems. What this miracle says is that ultimate salvation, the real fix, the eternal fix for the problems in this world are found only in this Jesus. Jesus the Christ who stands at the centre of all of God's plans. And if you spend your life clinging on to the little less saviours, they might, at best, they will give you a little, a little less salvation. Maybe. But it's only a maybe. There is no certainty there. In fact, lots of times, little less saviours promise you stuff and can't deliver. If you want certainty, if you want big S salvation, then you need to go to the big S saviour. And I tell you what, he's the one who in whose name he can even make a crippled man walk. It's very interesting. At the end of this, two speeches, one common message, there's two responses. Many in the crowd believe. You see there in chapter 4, verse 4. In fact, we're told there, chapter 4, verse 4, but many who heard the message believed and the number of believers grew to about 5,000. So lots of people believed. However, there's also opposition. The religious leaders refused to believe. Despite the miracle, they they believed the miracle happened. They knew it would happen. They couldn't deny it. But they still refused to believe. They wouldn't entrust themselves. 
to the big S saviour. And how tragic is that? Because then you're clinging on to your little S saviours who will not provide any permanent fix. Um, I, uh, we get, I've run out of time. So, that's working through the passage. There are three frequently asked questions that I was going to throw at you before we finish. So I'm just going to throw these up at you and if you've got a particular question about them, write it on your Connect card and I'd love you to, um, I'd love to try to interact with you um, online or elsewhere to try and talk about this. First question is this, can I believe these reports? Can I believe that these miracles actually happen? They sound pretty incredible, I grant you that. That really can be divided into two parts. First of all, are these documents that we're reading historically reliable? Can I actually trust these documents? Um, that's a really good question. It's an important question to ask. I think uh, the answer is yes. Uh, part of the reason is these documents circulated very early within the very regions of the world where the events happened and if they were all fictions, people could have very easily identified them as fictions at the time. But they, they weren't identified as fictions because they were actually telling the truth. So yes, I'd say they're historically reliable. There's even external non-Christian sources that attest that Jesus was known as a miracle worker. But then the question is, are they scientifically possible? Is it actually possible to have miracles? That's an important question for our scientifically orientated culture. And next week, here in the EU public meeting, the whole public meeting is given over to investigating this question. How can science fit with these sort of miracles that we read about in the Bible, in Luke and Acts? So we're going to give our, Jimbo's going to come and speak to us, who's one of the EU staff teams next week. It'll be a great week to come and bring your friends to. Second one, can Jesus heal today? The answer is, I think, an unambiguous yes, Jesus can heal today. He's still alive, he's still Lord, his kingdom is still growing. His mission is on. So yes, he can still heal today. In fact, the New Testament encourages Christians to pray for healing in Jesus' name with their church family in James chapter 5. However, Healings always happen according to the will of God. And God has not said that he will, he's not promised to provide a temporary fix for every ailment I face. He's promised to provide the permanent fix when Christ returns. But we're encouraged to pray for healing because sometimes in God's mercy, he even gives us a temporary fix to our current ailment. You might like to talk to me about that. And finally... Ought miracles accompany our proclamation of Jesus' gospel? As the apostles were proclaiming the message of Jesus, they were doing all these miracles in Jesus' name. Should that be happening today? I've been talking about Jesus today. Should I ask if anyone's got an ailment and come and heal you in Jesus' name? Would that, is that meant to happen? I would suggest to you no. And the reason, I think, is because in Acts itself, in chapter 14, verse 3, a very significant verse for understanding the place of miracles in the plans of God in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, verse 3, we're told, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking the word of the Lord, the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The point of the miracles was to attest to the apostles' authority as Jesus' chosen eyewitnesses. You can chase that up in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says that I did all the marks of an apostle amongst you. And then he says, signs, wonders and miracles. The signs, wonders and miracles 
Jesus enabled the apostles to do in their particular role as his chosen authoritative eyewitnesses carrying his message to the ends of the earth and the miracles were his way of attesting to their authority and authenticity. You might like to chase that up with me as well. Thanks very much. Look forward to seeing you next week.